Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the uh, Bill Arnold part of that short, compacted sentence. Awfully glad that we have this hour together. We're going to continue our Salvation Series with a very special guest. I have Dr. Peter Kapser in studio. And Peter, our guest today, I butchered his name three times already. I haven't gotten it right yet. <laughs> well, and, and what did we decide to land on? We actually heard it from the source just a couple of minutes ago off the air when we were yes. talking with him. But did we... Dr. We, Dr. We, Dr. Eric Taunus. Tanis? Did we land on Tanis or Tanis? Tanis. Tanis. And yeah. we'll, we'll probably need to get it from him in just a moment. But I said, I, I've said Thanis. I <laughs> said Thuanis. <laughs> right. It does lend itself to, to some confusion in the it's pronunciation wide open. for sure. It's it really wide is. open. Yeah. Because if I would spell it, it would be spelled T H. O-E-N-N-E-S. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of variable ranges that we could go with with that particular last name. So we should probably hear from him directly. Like, we how, well. we, how do we he's, save this? He's on our studio line. Let's That's welcome great. him to the show. Eric, welcome. Hey, guys. You know, Eric, to be with you. Eric, thank you so much. I was reading your resume, and uh, I have a lot of reasons not to like you already. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, come on. I'm at, like, page 12, and I'm going, you have more accomplishments than, like, 300 people and, and Eric, that was before we even saw the pictures of you then, too. So then you were just, you know, this the, you look like you're 6'5", sort of just descended into Scandinavia <laughs> with this square jaw. I mean, it's I know, amazing. This, this haircut, the whole yeah, thing. The whole, yeah, it's the whole package. Photoshop's amazing. Isn't yeah. It? <laughs> Let's close in prayer. I, don't, I, I didn't want to do this hour. <laughs> right. <laughs> but just to introduce you to our listening audience, uh, you are a professor and chair of theology at Biola University. Do I have that correct? Yes, sir. And you're also a pastor... Yes. And where do you pastor? At Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. So yeah. thank you. And we, we have been in a, a series on salvation. We started, I don't know, eight, nine, ten weeks ago, and it's been really wonderful. It's been a great learning experience for uh, all of us. And we were talking to Jerry Root, and Jerry said, you've got to call Eric. So uh, we said, yeah, let's call Eric. And then you said yes, so thank you. I think you had no choice because Jerry said, tell him <laughs> that I insist he do the show. So here you are. Yeah, Jerry's Jerry's got some inside information, so I, I do whatever he says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, Peter teaches. T- tell Eric about you. Peter. Yeah, yeah. I just, just I, yeah. I teach in Christian Ministries program here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Practical theology is sort of my field, and and I'll tell you what, salvation, Eric, comes up so often in so many of the different classes, and and we've covered a lot of the range of the topics that you probably get a lot of questions as well, like sort of, can you lose your salvation or, or what does it mean if, if I don't necessarily have a date of my salvation? But Bill had a question that, that we have not yet asked that I thought was sort of intriguing uh, around uh, almost salvation. I mean, Bill, what, that, how did you phrase that question? It was a really good way I think, to get started. Well, let's see. Um, the question is, can someone almost be saved? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think the question really arises from the fact that there are so many different experiences and circumstances within which people become Christians and find salvation. And I think the first thing to do is realize salvation is a big old word that involves both a past, present, and future sense in the New Testament. So we we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Uh, we we We've been saved, 
from our judgment for our sin. We're being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the penalty of sin once and for all on the day of judgment. So, so salvation's a big word. So it's important to decide first what we mean by that. And what we typically mean is conversion, being taken out of darkness into his marvelous light by saving faith that is justifying faith, and it is faith that leads to forgiveness and adoption and right standing with God. The tough thing about that is determining exactly when that happens in the life of an individual. I I teach college students, and I frequently ask them, how did God save you? And sometimes they say, well, when I was five, I prayed with my mom, and then when I was in high school, God really got a hold of my life, and so I'm not even sure if I was a Christian. So in our experience, it can be hard to decide exactly when someone is saved, even ourselves, because we can have religious experiences, and when did it really take hold? And, and so I think that's why the confusion comes out. I think it's important to realize that from God's perspective, there's a point in time where someone goes from being a rebel to a child, and, and it's clear to him, even though it can be fuzzy to us. I think we'd say, well, a thief on the cross was was almost not saved. So he sort of made it by the skin of his teeth, where somebody walks with Jesus for 70 years, had a, had a relationship all that time. So, so I, I think in an experiential sense, you can say, yeah, somebody made it in the nick of time. But from God's perspective, we find out that people are saved from the foundation of the world by his sovereign determination. So, so yes and no as theologians like to say. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit more, what you just said around uh, been saved, being saved, will be saved. I was listening to a bit of your Summer Is for Salvation series that you did a few years ago at your church, and, and you came right out of the gate with that phrase that I think is a phrase that uh, may be a bit unfamiliar to many people when we think of salvation in, in light of what you just said. We tend to think of salvation as conversion, but you just uh, used an entire phrase to talk about something bigger uh, than, than the conversion moment, as important as that conversion moment obviously is. You, can you unpack a little bit more what you mean by I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved, and how we sort of salvation is part of the entire journey moving forward as a believer? That's a great question. And, and some of it is because of a tradition we come from in particular or our particular experience or even where we are in the history of the church in what what gets emphasized so conversion is strongly emphasized in in revivalist traditions and traditions that emphasize making a decision for Jesus, raising your hand, walking an aisle, and God works powerfully in those sorts of ways. But there are other traditions that, that emphasize God's sovereignty in this, and they, they even in a Reformed tradition will have infant baptism as a sign of a covenant uh, relationship in the family of God. So, so some of it's your tradition and how you perceive this and what you emphasize. And I think justification a, a particular point where we're declared righteous by God because of faith is something we always need to emphasize, but not as uh, the beginning and end of everything, but in some ways, this the heart of a massive saving work God's doing. So he's saving us, and he's saving all of creation from its lost condition. So I, I think it's a big term, but I also don't want to lose the individual conversion aspect of it as well. He's saving the cosmos from its 
its fallen, twisted condition that leads to cancer and pain and thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow and pain in childbirth. But he's, he's saving individuals because that's where everything went awry. When, when humans rebelled against God, the whole creation was thrown into a, a distorted, twisted, sinful, fallen state. And he's in the process of saving all of it. At the heart of it is saving lost humans. But he's in the process of creating a new heavens and a new earth. Mm-hmm. Eric, here's a very obvious question, and people are going to be amazed that I get paid to ask a, questions, <laughs> a question that would come out of my mouth like this. But I want to ask it to you because I think it's important. Will you go to hell if you are not saved by Jesus? Well, how much do they pay you to ask questions like that? I, I would want to get paid a lot to ask questions like that. That's a big one. Um, well, yes. Uh, the Bible says, he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't does not have life. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He said that he's the only way to the Father. He's the, the radiance of the glory of God. We see the image of God in the face of Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So God reveals himself definitively in Jesus. He provides a way of escape from our sin and restored relationship with him alone through Christ. And so, yeah, Jesus is the way to salvation. And apart from him, people are lost and dead in their sin. That's, that's clearly what the Bible says. Now, again, it can be hard to even figure out exactly when that occurs for someone. But I think the Bible is very clear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's a highly unpopular view today where we think tolerance is, is the be-all and end-all, and the only heresy is that there's actually heresy. But... But, yeah, the Bible's clear about Jesus as the way. Mm -hmm. So, Eric, what if I can't remember a time when I was saved? Well, you would be like I am. Okay. (laughs) You would be like Ruth Bell Graham was. She used to say, I can't remember when the sun came up, but I know it's shining on me. Okay. And, And it can be a concern, because if you can't remember a time, people wonder if it actually happened. But for some people... They, they hear the gospel since they're children, and they're raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so it's the air they breathe. And there wasn't this radical conversion from, from hating God consciously to trusting him as a, as a child. For others, especially later in life, when you're running from God, you're even consciously hating God and hate his ways, or at least apathetic toward him. It, it tends to be more clearly marked in your life where you say, wow, I was, I was heading to hell, and God got a hold of me through this friend at work. And, and it can be far more clear when you, you trusted Christ. Uh, so, so I don't think the importance is identifying an exact moment or day even, but, but that you know now you're relying on Jesus and Jesus alone for your restored relationship with God. I think that's the most important question now. Uh, what or whom are you trusting for your forgiveness and your relationship with God right now? That's the big question. Mm-hmm. Dr. Eric Taunas is our guest. We're continuing our, our salvation series. Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself will be right back after a short break.
Welcome back. We are uh, continuing our salvation series, uh, which, by the way, is uh, currently up for a Pulitzer Prize. No, wait, a Happy Meal Prize. I, <laughs> I'll I, take it. I'll take anything, won't right, you? Right, right. Yeah. A little stuffed animal and a cheeseburger would do it you, for me right yeah, now. I'd Absolutely. be happy with that as well. Our guest is Dr. Eric Taunus, and he comes to us all the way from uh, California, and we're chatting with him about salvation and just uh, loving it. So, Peter, you had a question for Eric. Yeah, Eric, I was curious. I, I know that the second uh, sermon in that series that we referenced earlier that you did a few years ago, uh, I, I don't think that you gave that sermon, but you referenced the idea of the importance of, of recognizing that only God can raise from the dead. And I think so often when we think about salvation, we understandably think about the events of Good Friday and the and the crucifixion and Jesus dying as a substitute in place for our sins. And, and all of the language that we have around that for our salvation but uh, there also is this idea that without the resurrection, our faith is in vain, that something about salvation is not put into effect uh, without Easter Sunday. So I'm curious if you can comment some more on the dimensions of salvation that have to do with the fact that only God can raise people from the dead. Well, God's the author of life. He's the creator of life, and he's in charge of even sustaining it and the eternal realities of life. So, yeah, God is life. He's the source of it. And so he's in charge of it. And he's the one who alone has the prerogative to take life. And he is the one who gives life. And so we, we trust him for that. We, we realize that he is the one who alone is able to do that. And so he's the one who's able to overcome death. He alone can bring the dead to life. And we tend to think of justification and and our righteousness in Christ as something that is the result of his death, which it certainly is. But we read in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so his resurrection then becomes the source as well as his death of our righteousness before him. And that gives us a relationship with God that gives us eternal life. And so he raises the dead in the resurrection. It's, I'm so glad you asked that question because I really think talking about the resurrection is something my grandparents' generation did all the time. But I think we focus so much on the here and now that we don't talk enough anymore about where it's all heading and where it's all going to end. And so, so I, I love that question because we await the future resurrection when the dead in Christ will rise. My great-grandfather used to think about it all the time. I have a friend who used to have a big, huge belt buckle that was a trumpet, and it said, perhaps today. <laughs> he was from Alabama. He's from Alabama, so that fit in great there. But, but yeah, I mean, we used to think about Jesus returning, and I think we can get so focused on now that and, and even dying and going to heaven, but the resurrection is what we long for when the tragic separation of body and soul because of sin is done away with, and there's a reuniting in body and soul in the resurrection that he brings about, following Jesus out of the grave. That, it starts with his justifying resurrection, and because of that, we follow him. He's the first fruits that we follow in in our resurrection as well. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, no, so I, it, I mean, when you talk in that way, it's, it's almost as though, yes, we do need to gaze back at the past and be grateful for the events on the cross. But as we orient ourselves as believers, as part of this salvation journey, we get a chance to see and, and glimpse our actual future as Jesus being the first fruits of one who has fully conquered sin and death. And that is where we're headed. And so it seems to me there's a sense as we participate in this process of salvation in our life, that that is where we fix our eyes. And there's a great hope to be gained from that. 
Indeed. Yeah, it's interesting. Peter talks about preparing your minds for action and set your hope fully on the hope to come. So there's a sense of because of what Jesus has done, I'm right in God's sight, and now I need to engage in the battle presently, but always with my eyes focused on what's, what's to come one day. And so it's a future-oriented hope, but it's grounded in a past work of Jesus. So it's a, it's a backward-looking faith. It's a present-looking faith for God to sustain me today, and it's a future-looking faith for him to once and for all resolve all the problems our sin has caused. Eric, uh, as we talk about salvation, I, I do want to ask you, what does it mean to know and love God? Because hmm. salvation would be the ultimate intimate moment of being forgiven of your sins, being made new in Christ. So we have to know him. What, is it, what does it mean to know him and love him? I think if we could just get Genesis 1-1 down, <laughs> everything else would fall right into place. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If he's the creator and we are the created, we owe him everything. Everything is gift. Everything is from him, for him, to him, and through him. He, he's, he's the source of everything. We're utterly dependent on him for every breath, every heartbeat, every molecule, every atom. If we could just start there... We would never forget what people say are the two basic facts of human enlightenment. One, there's a God, and two, you're not him. And if we could just start there and realize the difference between the creator and we as the creature, we would see sin for what it is. Because the Bible tells us in in Romans 1 that sin is exchanging the glory of God, the the creator, for the glory of the creature, sinful man. And it's that great exchange, the worship exchange, that causes our problem. And so when we realize we're created by God for God, but every one of us has rebelled against that purpose for our lives, and we don't live up to the glory of God, as Romans 3 says, then we realize we need reconciliation that we can't provide for ourselves. And God doesn't leave us in that state. He provides a way of escape because he has this incredible love that causes him to send his son to live and die and rise in the place and for rebellious sinners. Not because we're worthy, not because we earned anything or proved anything, but because he's so overwhelmingly loving. And when we realize that God's way of escape in Jesus is our lifeline and we trust him only, God moves in and he saves us and he forgives us and he adopts us and invites us into fellowship with him that's existed for all of eternity among the Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and we have not only what Adam and Eve have had, but, but in infinitely more in, in the, because we're in the Son. We, we're, we have union with Christ, and everything that is his is ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. It's the most awesome inheritance you could ever have. Mm-hmm. Eric, how well can you know God? Well, we can know him amazingly well when we consider that we're finite creatures with limited ability to understand, so we can never exhaustively know him. We can never know him um, comprehensively. He's infinite. We're finite. Uh, we're, we're sinful. He's, he's holy. Uh, he doesn't tell us everything we may want to know. The Bible says that the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us forever. So 
we we know God, but we know God as finite creatures, limited creatures, and He's an infinite God. So I think the three of us are going to sit down and continue this conversation in heaven and having never-ending, mind-blowing, growing experience of who God is. But that's not to say he's not knowable. Uh, Peter, again, he, he tells us that, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness and the knowledge of him and in Jesus Christ our Lord, which means we have knowledge that is sufficient to know him and be everything he's created us to be. It, it's personal knowledge, and it is true knowledge. So we never know anything about him exhaustively, but we can know things about him that are true in a life-giving way, in a, a abundant, fulfilling way that gives us eternal life. We have eternal life in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. And, and so we, he's knowable in the midst of being incomprehensible. And so that humility and confidence is what we should have because of that. I love that. That's a great answer. Now, because we need to be saved from our sin and only the blood of Christ can do that. Maybe the question, and here's another obvious question they pay me to ask these, what is sin? Well, I, I think Romans explains it as well as we can, that it's, it's the exchanging of the glory of the immortal God for the, the glory of sinful creatures. And we worship the work of our hands rather than the God who made us. And... And then that's ultimately worshiping ourselves. And so it's, it's the great exchange of rather than living for God's glory as we were created to, we live for ourselves. And everybody worships. And this idea that only religious people worship. And, and, and everybody devotes themselves religiously to something. The question is, is that a worthy object of your worship? And so, so anything but God is not a worthy object of our, object of our worship. And so... Sin is rebellion against God. It's choosing to worship myself, ultimately, the, the creation, rather than the one who made us all. That's a great answer. I appreciate that. Um, we're going to uh, take a little break. Uh, Dr. Eric Taunas is our guest. We're continuing our Salvation Series, Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself. And if you are hearing something you want some clarification on, or you think you have... Uh, heard something uh, that you need more information on, you can send me a text and we'll ask uh, Eric right here on the spot just for you. So send the text over to 877-933-2484. Or if you like email better, you can email me directly, bill at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll take a short break and Peter and I and Eric will be right back. Faith Radio. Ready? 
Welcome back to the show, Salvation Series Underway. Dr. Peter Kapster and myself have our special guest, Dr. Eric Tonis, on the program today. And so far, Eric is doing phenomenal, wouldn't you say, Peter? Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing stuff, actually. And the questions are coming in, I think, as a result of it, too. Yeah. There's quite a few listeners that are chiming yeah. in. We grade people halfway through the show. We, we and, do, yeah. Eric, he's doing better than yeah, others. Yeah, you're right better on the border of B plus, A minus. There's, <laughs> there's room for improvement, and, and we have hope for you. I'm just hoping I don't get fired halfway through no, the show. No, you won't. You're, so, Eric, uh, somebody said, can you please repeat that quote, we can know God in the scope of the incomprehensible? Do you remember what you said? Uh, well, uh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it at that then. And I'm yeah, not so sure I got God, that. God's, God is knowable, but within the context of his incomprehensibility. It, knowing God should be incredibly humbling. Sadly, the Bible tells us knowledge puffs up. Mm. Knowledge in general, in, in, in a crazy way, knowledge about God has a, a tendency to make us arrogant. It's, it's one of the most insane things ever. But I start off my classes with uh, reading by a, a theologian in a little chapter of his book. It's called um, The Pathology of the Young Theologian's Conceit. And it's, it's just this tendency we have to think we've arrived in some way because we have a master of divinity. We're going to talk about a silly name for a degree. And, and you, you, like you'll ever master divinity. And so we can easily start to be impressed with our knowledge of God. But anytime someone gets a, a new knowledge of God, a new level of understanding of God in the Bible, they get on their face. They're humbled. They say, I'm undone. I, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. So when we gain knowledge of God, legitimate increased knowledge of God, our wonder increases and our humility increases and our awareness of our own sin and frailty increases. And so knowledge of God, that is true knowledge, has to have a profound humbling effect if it's actually the kind of knowledge that is true knowledge. And so we gain knowledge and it's true and it is wonderfully sufficient and personal, and it's knowledge we'd be willing to die for on the core doctrines. But we also realize we've just begun to, to probe the depths of who God is. And so we can't have this self-assured, I, I study theology kind of mentality. There's no been there, done that in the study of God. But at the same time, we should have rock-solid confidence that God's revealed himself, his word is fundamentally clear that we have the ability to know him with the Spirit's help and with some hard work, and we can really understand who God is, what his word teaches us, and get on with living it out. So it's, it's a solid knowledge, but in the context of an incomprehensibility that, that gets us on our face. Eric, in light of what you're talking about now and something you said before the break as well, that, that was really intriguing, the idea that post this life and, and for eternity, that if God is inexhaustible, that we're going to continue to be able to grow in knowledge uh, even throughout all eternity. And and what we're seeing through a glass darkly now, I suppose, to use the language of Scripture, well, then we will see face to face. But but we will be con- this journey will keep going on forever and ever. Right. So it's a great verse to quote there. So I think primarily what's going on there is our sin adds to the difficulty of knowing God. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans, that, that we distort it, we pervert it. We, we have the, the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on our ability to understand. That'll be gone. And our knowledge of God will skyrocket. 
but we'll never be omni-anything, right? God's omnipresent, omnipotent. God is omniscient. We'll never be omni-anything. We'll never be infinite in who we are. We'll always be finite creatures, and that's, that's not a bad thing. That's how he made us to be, and that's a wonderful difference between an infinite God and finite creatures. And so we, we can enjoy the never-ending exploration of who God is as we, we learn together. We won't have sin clouding that anymore. He'll even no doubt reveal many of the secrets he's keeping now, as he tells us, because he's a wise father who doesn't tell us everything we may think we need to know. But we're, we're able to know him truly in a humbling way. And, and yeah, I think spend eternity as finite creatures who are continually learning about our great God. Mm-hmm. Eric, we've got some listeners jumping in. want to want a piece of your brain here. Here's a uh, question. Uh, Assuming that with knowledge comes responsibility and knowing not everyone is predestined to come to saving faith, would you, by taking your children to church every Sunday, potentially be subjecting them to greater punishment in hell should they not come to faith? Oh, that what an interesting question. Yeah. I, I don't think that increased knowledge is something we ever need to fear as somehow then now incurring more responsibility. I think the, the exhortation throughout the Bible is to seek to know God with our whole heart. That's what we're made for, to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and that requires pursuing Him and knowledge of Him. And the call of the Great Commission is to bring the knowledge of God to people. Uh, we're all condemned before God. We all deserve hell. None of us starts off in a better condition than anyone else in our fallenness. And so, no, I, I think we're called to know God as much as we're able to and help people to know him more. Now, there is a sense in the Bible where God will say to even Jerusalem that because of what I've revealed to you, you'll be more, more accountable than Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a sense where God will say, you have had, he even says to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob followed me, and they only knew me as El Shaddai, but you now know me as Yahweh. How much more should you follow me? And those of us who have seen the fulfillment of all those promises in Jesus, we have the ultimate evidence. And so there is an accountability that comes with increased revelation, but bottom line is we're all equally accountable before God. We're all condemned already, the Bible says, where we have sufficient revelation. In the heavens that declare his glory, in the, in the internal awareness of God's presence, the Bible says that we are all without excuse. And so that's an equally fallen condition we're all in, even though God does recognize some people have had, had more revelation than others. All right, so part two of this question, Eric, is I'm also trying to understand that in context of the New Testament passages that talk about whole households who find salvation. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, That's a situation in the book of Acts where there's a description that you and your household will find salvation. Now, whether or not that is an awareness that comes in a prophetic way or some sort of pattern we can expect or follow— I don't think that's a clear teaching on that. But we do see, I just was talking to a friend where his mom came to Christ and she started praying for her husband and her children. And uh, two months later, they were all baptized together. 
And so God will do that. He will start to work through a family or a community or a village on the mission field and bring revival in powerful ways where the emphasis isn't on an individual coming to Christ, but God is taking over in a community. Now, it requires individual conversion for that to happen. But I do think sometimes, especially in, in a Western, more American context, we do think very individualistically about God's work Rather than sometimes he does move in, and not even just families, but communities, churches, schools. I've been part of revival several times, and God will just sweep in and draw people to himself in a collective way. That doesn't remove the individual element of that, but there is a powerful communal aspect of his work at times that is is undeniable. Mm -hmm. Eric, could you comment on Luke 19, where Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to your house. Yeah, um, whether or not Jesus is is telling him what he knows is going to happen, or talking about Zacchaeus's individual faith that the will then spread, no doubt, uh, we, we can't exactly be sure. But I, I think it's he's saying Zacchaeus was a man who was living in opposition to God in his ways, and he's had a wonderful conversion. He's had a repentance experience that Jesus knows is going to have a ripple effect in his house and have an influence on the people in his household, and, and no doubt well beyond. He was a he was a well-known man. And Eric, can you come in, too, when we were talking about salvation coming and arriving and also the idea of whole households being saved? I'm thinking about uh, kids that grow up in Christian families, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have that sort of situation. H- how do you begin to explain to your kids that uh, there's a difference between being a Christian and uh, growing up in a Christian family, how do, how do you invite them maybe to, to wonder about these things of salvation when it's sort of surrounded them for their whole life? Yeah, that's a great question. So at Biola University, where I teach, most of my students grew up in Christian homes and went to church most of their life and, and even went to Christian schools sometimes. And so one of my biggest concerns with for them is exactly what you're saying, that they, they're just sort of, it's the air they breathe, it's their subculture, it's it's what they've known. And so they can be potentially, and I, I, I've seen this, just living in the culture. And they're sort of living off of their mom and dad's faith and they're not their own, which is one of the reasons I love teaching college students is because it's this time to say, okay, you've been handed off this good but depositive truth. Do you really believe it? Is it something that has really transformed your life or is it just a subculture and a whole, and a whole terminology set that you've learned to, to say. And, and so it's a great time to say, what do you really believe? What, what do you believe? Not just what does your family believe? And one of the biggest challenges with that is being raised in a Christian family very often will insulate you from some of the devastating effects of sin in your life. And so you're a nice kid, and you grew up, and you never killed anybody, and you, you're a pretty good kid, you got good grades. And, and to say, yeah, but... If you don't repent and trust in Jesus, God will judge you and you'll die in your sin. It just, but I'm a nice, I'm a nice person. <laughs> and so, so sometimes, you know, I've, I've worked in Christian schools. I've worked in prisons. I've worked in professional contexts. And honestly, the people I'm, I'm most optimistic about realizing their need for a Savior is the guys in prisons who've messed up terribly. And they can't act like they're just nice people <laughs> because we're all in the same boat in our sin. And so sometimes a Christian environment can, can protect us 
from ramifications of our sin. That's true of all of us, but we don't see it as clearly until sometimes tragedy happens or we really do something that messes up. But, but that's why I, I want to be at the end of myself before life forces me there, even as a Christian. I, I want to be utterly dependent on God, even as a Christian, without circumstances of life making that happen to me. And so, yeah, it can be a real challenge for, for children raised in Christian environments to really say, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. <laughs> well, not really. I came to Christ when I was four. And, and so, <laughs> so it, you know, circumstantially, you don't remember this big conversion, but, but you were desperately wicked and, and you were saved, even though it happened when you were five. Yeah. You've had a pretty interesting resume, Eric. Did you also like work as an underwater welder or something? <laughs> I did. I did. I was a commercial diver for a while. See, how do we compete with this? Peter? You, you, cannot, with this? you cannot. I'm actually going to step away so, from the studio at this no, point. I'm so tired of you, Eric. <laughs> Seriously, I can't. We'll take a break and we'll decide if we'll have it back yeah, yeah. after the break. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right, that's fair too. We'll, we'll be right back. Kapsner and myself are continuing our salvation series, and we are talking to the ultimate Renaissance man, Doctor <laughs> <laughs> Eric Taunus. So, we're glad you're still with us, Eric. Uh, we appreciate you being on the show. Let me ask you this uh, question: This comment was made. People, when they're sharing their faith and they're trying to reach others for Christ uh, and and the message of salvation, this listener said, "I was once challenged by a Muslim that Jesus is not God." Because the Bible says that God doesn't slumber, but Jesus slept in the boat. God is immortal. Jesus died. God is all-knowing. At one point, Jesus said, I don't know when these things will happen. Only my Father knows. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. And it leads us to an understanding of Jesus as fully God and fully man. So before Jesus took on a human nature, the eternal Son takes on a human nature that the Holy Spirit brings about in Mary so that Jesus can be the God-man, which is what we desperately need him to be for us, to be God who can conquer sin, but a human being who can truly represent us in his life of sinlessness and his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. And so he needs to both have his divine nature, which is which is able to conquer sin, and he needs to have his representative human nature at the same time. So before that incarnation happened, that infleshment happened, he never did sleep. He has a full divine nature that never needs to sleep, never slumbers or sleep, never experiences the difficulty of life in, in a fallen world that human beings experience. Uh, and so there were lots of things Jesus had never done before. He had never been hungry before. He had he had never felt the kind of physical pain before. And even after his resurrection, 
he wants to make sure they know he still has his human nature and his human body and, and that he's not a ghost and he can eat food. And, and he never was tempted to sin before because his human nature brought that capacity for him. And so the, the, the addition that Philippians 1 talks about, although, although he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And he doesn't make himself nothing by removing divine attributes. He makes himself nothing, Philippians 2 tells us, by taking on a human nature and being made human likeness. He becomes our representative. And so it's, it's change by addition, not subtraction. And so, yes, in his human nature, he now acquires the ability to experience the things we do in our humanity because otherwise he wouldn't have truly represented us. Eric, when we're talking about salvation from the perspective of of those people who live after the cross and the resurrection event, but you're talking about Jesus walking the earth, and I'm thinking about the people that lived during the time of Jesus and also before. How how did salvation work for them? I mean, it's it's sort of the classic question, right? People in the Old Testament, what what was salvation like? How do we understand their role and where they fit in this whole plan? I I think so often when we answer questions, we should be trying to always say, well, who is God? Because that's the starting point of understanding just about every question. And and so when I think of who God is, he's eternal. He's not bound by time. And we're all saved through his provision in the atoning work of Christ. Abraham is saved by his faith in God's provision. He had not seen the fulfillment of those covenant promises as we have now seen in Christ. But God is taking his atoning work in Jesus and applying it to Abraham. That's what the Bible says, that he's justified by faith. And so so Abraham is justified the same same way we are, by faith in God's atoning provision. He didn't have the full details like we do. We're saved in reverse. So we look back into history and trust Jesus. Abraham's looking forward into the future and trust God's provision, God's provision. And so God's using that same atoning sufficient work to provide for Abraham's forgiveness, who's justified by faith, and for ours, who, as we're justified by faith, looking into the past. Eric, I've got a listener that wants to know if there's a process to believing, or is it typically all at once, and is there a right way? And sometimes feelings uh, barge in, and it's hard to surrender, and it's hard to trust him over feelings. Can you comment on that? Yeah. Man, you you have some brilliant listeners, Bill. I agree. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's a great question. Yeah, C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert ever, (laughs) and and, yet some of us come to Christ realizing, wow... I don't think I, I'm going to like a lot of this, but I have seen Christ, and I know he's the way, the truth, and the life. I know this may require some very painful tra- changes in my life. I, I even think of Peter uh, when people are leaving Jesus, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, uh, would you like to go too? And Peter says to him, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I almost hear Peter saying, part of me wants to go. But I'm betting the ranch on you. you. I've decided you're the one. I'm trusting. You're the, you alone have the, way, the, the answers in the life that we need. And so we come in all sorts of ways. 
Uh, and faith involves both our intellect, it involve, involves our affections, it involves our behavior. All those work together, and not necessarily in chronological order. Jesus says, if you want to know whether my words come from heaven or not, put them into practice. Which means even behavior has a faith-affirming effect on us. Sometimes until I actually obey Jesus, the, the full truthfulness of his ways and words don't come home to me. And so we're pretty complex creatures. You know, we have these minds that sometimes are telling us things that, that aren't true, that we need to submit to the Word of God. I love that hymn, Be Still My Soul, The Lord is on mm. My Side. In other words, I'm telling my heart, my soul to shut up. Saying, <laughs> why, why are you anxious? Yeah. You know, you believe things that should mean you're not anxious, but you are anyway. Be still, my soul. Right. Calm down. Yeah. Would you live in accordance with what you would I believe? And so we have this war raging in our, inside ourselves. Paul talks about in Romans seven that I, in fact, I do the very thing I hate. And so, so yeah, the, the mind, the affections, and behavior all work together in the expression of faith and the deepening of faith. And we need to appreciate all of them. Uh, sometimes I use my body to get my heart in a better place. I, I, I feel arrogant, so I, I get on my knees. I, mm. I don't feel like worshiping, so I, I risk, lift my hands, and my heart starts to follow that. And, and sometimes I read a great book, and it ignites my heart to, to deeper affection. So, so, yeah, they all work together, and it's not always in, in the same order. Although I do think there's a pattern the Bible talks about of, that, that we should have transformed minds like Romans Twelve that that lead to transformed affections that lead to transformed living, but it's just not always in that order. Mm-hmm. Eric, how would you explain joy to somebody if uh, they, you know, you hear that once you come to know Jesus, you're going to have joy? That's certainly been my experience. But what if what if you believe you're saved, but you really don't have joy? Yeah, I think it's important to define joy as the result of the security and the freedom and the identity we find completely in Jesus. When we know how loved we are by a God who says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And, and we follow a God who understands and sent his son to die for us. He didn't save us from a distance. And when we believe in a God who, who says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That leads to joy, exuberant, inexpressible joy. Now, it's important to define the experience of that with different personalities and, and different circumstances and seasons of life where we're not experiencing in the same way. Sometimes it's a deep settledness of our soul where it's just a quietness. Sometimes it looks a whole lot like a party and, and, and just shouting in, in gratitude for what God's done. And so it can look different at different times and in different personalities, but, but it does need to be there. The joy of the Lord is our hope. And Christians should be known by our joy, not, not a silly, trivial, uh, back-slapping sort of thing, but, but a deep, abiding settledness of our souls and, and delight. And there should be a childlikeness to it, I think. I, I think there should be a playfulness among Christians. I love, I mean, there is so clearly a fun playfulness, even in the way you guys are leading this show, uh, that should be there. We're talking about the heaviest stuff possible. Mm. But I, I picked up immediately in talking to you guys. There, there's a joy in this 
because we're taking God very seriously, but we're not taking ourselves seriously. That that really needs to be how we how we roll. Mm-hmm. Eric, we Love just have, we just have like a minute and a half left. Can you close us out in prayer, and maybe with a, a simple invitation uh, to have sal- to receive salvation? I would love to. I would love to. Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, we are grateful that you made us in your image for your glory and for relationship with you. And it's there alone that we find the identity, the life, the joy that we were created to have. Lord, I pray for those listening that are no doubt all over the place regarding their relationship with you. And Lord, I pray you would deeply impress on them their desperate need for a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior that deep down they need and are longing for. He alone can bring what they need and what they want, a life of profound and eternal meaning. Lord, I pray that they would turn from sin and self to Christ and Christ alone and that they would find life abundant and eternal in him. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd be working powerfully in the hearts of all of us listening, uh, all of those listening, Lord, and that you do a great work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Eric, Amen. thank you so much. If you have a colleague uh, that you know that you don't like very much, refer him to our show. <laughs> <laughs> that way you can get back at somebody. <laughs> Will do. Thank Thanks, you so guys. much for being our guest. Blast. It's been so much fun. So Dr. much fun. Dr. Eric Taunas has been our guest. That wraps up our show for the day. If you missed any of this hour, I promise you're going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check it out from the beginning. Have a great night, everyone. God bless, and see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.